chapter 2. As you're finding your place there, let me thank Michael. Michael, thanks for leading us this morning. Like he said, he's been here a few other times. He was with us, I think, back in July and then again in early part of September and again today. And, and the reason he's here with us this morning is because Ben Little, who's been our interim worship uh, pastor for the last several months, is on in view of a call at a sister church. He's over in Seaford. And so we want to be praying for him this morning that things that he's been involved with this week will continue to uh, move along as the Lord directs and has planned in his sovereign will. And so we're excited about Ben and the future for he and his family moving over there to the Seaford area. And also today, our new worship pastor who will be with us in two Sundays, November 22nd, Ricky Johnson, he and his wife are finishing up at their church there in Fort Worth, Texas. And so these are big days for both of these guys as we want to be praying for the Lord to just bless them, give them a great morning, and to kind of remove those butterflies. When you when you leave a church, I know it's, it's the same way on some level uh, when you pick up and move from just membership. Maybe God moves you to another community or whatever. There's a little apprehension there, a little anxiety there as you're kind of leaving one family and you're hoping to find a new family quickly. It's doubly so when you're uh, leaving a, a church from a staff position, especially one like Ricky where he's been there 12 years. Ever since he was 18 years old, he's been on staff at this church. And so it's a big day, uh, kind of bittersweet for he and his family. And so we want to be praying for them uh, today and over the next couple weeks as they transition here. And so we're excited about that. But if you got your place there in Judges chapter 2, this morning we're going to move along in our study of the church and talk about the fact that we are a theological people. Now last week we began this series talking about how we as the church, as we understand what the New Testament, and for that matter what the Old Testament is leaning and leading us into the New Testament as far as its teaching, we saw there that we're a preaching people, that we're a people that is built upon the Word of God. And so when we think about us being a preaching people and, and preaching in, its, in, in, in the sense of what it is, we understand that the preaching of the church, the, the message of the church is grounded, is formed from the Bible. We have one text, and that is the Bible. And so in essence, the preacher's message, the doctrine of the church, if you will, is delivered from the Bible to the church, and basically the preacher and teacher is saying, thus says the Lord. And so we're not coming at this, looking at the Bible, saying this is what the Lord may be saying to us, or this is what the Lord might be directing us or alluding to. No, this is exactly what the Lord says to his people and says to those who would be his people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so preaching then, as we said last week, has the Bible as its content, but it's not just about information. The goal is transformation. God wants to speak into our lives through his word so that he will transform us from the inside out. And so it's not a behavioral modification. When we talk about preaching, it's not five steps to whatever, seven steps to a happy marriage or any of those things. No, we want the word of God to transform our hearts so that we can be a better person, a better father, a better mother, a better husband, a better uh, citizen in this nation. So transformation is always the goal. And when we think about the Bible being our subject matter, the foundation from where God is speaking to us, now, when we think about that, it's oftentimes that the Bible's teaching can be difficult to receive. I mean, think about what the Bible does. It always pokes at our sinfulness, right? It always pokes at those tendencies in our life that are an affront to the Lord, those things that are in opposition to His holiness and to His character by and large. And so when we think about the Bible and what it's doing, it's always touching on those areas of our lives that we think should be untouchable. They reveal the character 
and the ways of God with his people as well as confront our sin. And so there's, there's a tension there. We want to know about God. We want to know about his ways. We don't want to know how he's going to interact with us. But in doing so, he also pushes those areas that are in opposition to him. So then we would do well to build our lives. We would do well to build our church upon the word of God and what he said rather than what we would prefer he has said. And that's the tendency that we tend to have, right? We, we, we go into this like we do with everything. We have preferences or we have prescribed ideas and things about how God should do or what he should, how he should act, how he should respond to us, what he should say to us, rather than taking God for what he has said from the very beginning. Back in 2017, Carl Lentz, you may know who he is, you may not, but he's the former pastor of Hillsong, New York City. Back in 2017, he appeared on the ABC's show, The View, that, that uh, show there. I think it's in the morning time where they have people come on and the, the panel there will press them. And that particular day in that show, Joy Behar uh, really pressed Carl Lentz on his position toward abortion. He, she kept asking, is abortion a sin? Is abortion wrong? Is abortion against the Lord? And so Lentz responded by laying out a potential scenario. He's kind of began to dance around the question and he said this. He said, that's kind of a conversation we would have finding out your story. We want to know where you're from. We want to know what you believe because God's the judge. People have to live their, own life, or live their own lives and have their own convictions, he says. That's such a broad question to me, and I'm going to go higher. I want to sit with somebody and say, what do you believe? Now, Lentz received much scrutiny over his comments there on that show. And later he tried to clarify his response. And when you think about the situation he found himself in, it can be understandable that uh, in an interview situation like that on The View, when they're going to press you hard, multiple uh, people on the panel with different views, different opinions, trying to get their words to be heard, it can be difficult to have time to fully articulate an answer to such a hot button issue like abortion. So when I look at his response and read it, the problem I see in his answer is the idea that people have to live with their own convictions. I think that's troublesome coming from a man who would call himself a pastor. So it's good to begin a conversation around an issue, and it's good to seek to understand where that person's coming from. I have no problem with his position that he laid out from that standpoint. Yeah, we want to sit down. We want to have a conversation. We want to hear the other person's view. But when it comes down to understanding the issue itself, we don't approach it from our own perspective. As the people of God, we approach it from God's perspective and what he has said. So sure, hear what they say, but then press it with the Lord's word. So the real issue is not what, you, what do you believe, but what has God said. See, our understanding of God in his character, in the ways that he deals with the people, is built upon the foundation of the Bible, and it's built on nothing less. The Word of God is our text. We are a preaching people, and from that we see we are a theological people. Theological people. I want you to just wrestle with a couple questions as we kind of get started this morning. Started this morning. Y'all didn't know I was Scottish, did you? If I wasn't so gray uh, on my head, and even if I was to grow a beard, I would have a, a little bit of red there from my Irish upbringing from my dad's side. Think about these questions with me. What is God like? What is God like? And how does he interact with his people? 
What does God do, and how does he interact with us as human beings, even as his church? You know, we think about these questions, and, and, and many others like them. We should never be considered, or these questions should never be considered irrelevant when it comes to how we work through life, how we think through the different questions, how we try to, to make our faith relevant in practical matters of life. Because it does matter to know what God is like. When we think about approaching the Lord and understanding Him, when we come at it from different understandings, understandings that are separate and apart from His Word and what He has spoken, obviously it will lead us to different viewpoints, different responses, different ways to live, and ultimately lead us to destructive behaviors. So as a preaching people, those who would believe the Bible, we are a theological people. We love theology. Y'all love theology? Or does that term scare you to death? Theology, it's such a theological term. What does theology mean? It simply means the study of God. Right? It's the study of God. You put ology on anything, it's the study of whatever's in front of it. So if we're talking about cosmology, well, that's the study of the cosmos. It's the study of the universe. It's the study of what's been created out there. And so this is simply the study of God. And so in a, in, in a sense, we are all theologians. We all come at this question, what is God like? How does he interact with humanity? We come at it with our own perspective, our own set of understandings that have been developed through all kinds of different things. Now, obviously, we're believers, by and large, in this room, those watching us online. We are believers. We approach that question or those sets of questions from the biblical perspective. It's, it's, that question is built on or the answer is built upon what the Word of God has to say. And yet, also, we come at these questions with our experiences. We come at them with our preconceived conceptions of who God is and what He is like. So all of these things work together, our teachings, experiences, what we desire for God to be, or to be true about God, all of these things work together and form our theology. Now what we want to do as a theological people is we want to take our experiences and appreciate them for what they are, we want to take our prescribed ideas and maybe not appreciate them, but just understand that they're there. And we want to bring them to the outside of everything and allow the Word of God to form our theology. Does that make sense? We are a theological preaching people. So our theology must be exclusively informed by the Bible. And for it alone is God's revelation of himself given to us. And so when we know and follow its teachings, think about this, there is blessing. When we follow God's word, when we believe God's word, we adhere to God's word, there's blessing. When we fail to do so, what does the Bible tell us? There's destruction. There's consequences with, that come with that. All of the things that the Lord warns us about in his word will come to fruition. So as a church, we seek to be a biblical theological people. Notice the title of the sermon may be a theological people, but you can be a theological people but have bad theology. So our theology is grounded and built upon, built in the Word of God, the Bible itself. So let's talk about this this morning. 
you got your place there in Judges chapter 2. Now, before we read the first 15 verses, let me just kind of remind you of what's going on here. I preached through uh, the book of Judges, I don't know, three or four years ago. And so if you weren't here, and many of you weren't, I would encourage you to go back in your spare time. And rather than uh, binge watching something that's not going to edify your life, go back and binge listen some of these sermons and learn what's going on in the book of Judges because it's indicative of American culture. American Christianity, that we want the things of this world, we want God, and so when we obviously choose the things of the world, it gets us in trouble, and then we run back to God, and we, we chase this cycle over and over and over again in our lives. And so Israel was to be a theological people. When you understand and think about the history of Israel, we know that God had brought the nation out of Egyptian bondage. bondage. He had given them his law, and then while they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years, he provided for them, and he protected them. And then they began to settle into the promised land, and as they did so, their theology began to change. And they began to usher in the consequences that come with bad theology. So let's look at what we see here in Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. He's a, he, he's a, we, we saying about he's a chain breaker, but in this sense, he's not going to break the chain of covenant with his people. Verse 2, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochum, which means, as you you look down at the bottom of your Bible probably, you can see that it means weepers. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of of his inheritance in Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaish. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Here in Judges, at the beginning of these first two chapters, we see two sides of the same coin see a report and an interpretation of what has happened. This is a, uh, an overview of what you're going to read as you continue in the book of Judges through the next uh, 14 chapters. But sandwiched in between these two historical reports is this encounter with a divine messenger. And so through this envoy, through this messenger, God reminded Israel of his continued faithfulness. You know, the Bible tells us over and over again that God is faithful. 
He is always faithful. He stands by his faithfulness. He reminds them here of that truth as well, that characteristic of who he is. So Israel is reminded of his faithfulness, his continued faithfulness. They also see that, that God points out their sin. He points out that what they've done, how they've walked away into idolatry. But he also does another thing. He gives room for repentance. Aren't you grateful that when God begins through his word to press in on your life and to touch those areas that you want to wall off, that you want to keep in the closet, that you don't want anyone to see, much less for the Lord to see, when he begins to touch on those and bring conviction to your life, aren't you grateful that it's not to just expose those to damn you to hell, it's to expose them to bring you to faith and repentance, that there can be restoration in your life. Thank you for the two people who are excited about that this morning. Maybe the Lord will press on some areas of your life. I'm somewhat joking about that. It, it ought to be something that excites us, man, I'm telling you. That God is so gracious and so merciful that he would draw us out of sin and restore us in our faith, restore us in our walk with him. And so when we think about what's happening here, we see that few periods in Israel's eventful history, which has been eventful for the 5,000 years they've existed, but few eras of history in the Jewish uh, uh, people are as important as the time that we read here of the judges and all of the things that we see transpiring in these 16 chapters. During these centuries, the nation took the wrong turn that led to her downfall, led to her destruction, Right? As you have read through, we preached through Judges, you saw that a few years ago. The apostasy of the later generations has its origin in the early years of the settlement. And so there's a clear line between the time when the nation first went after Baal that we're seeing here, and then when we see in 2 Kings chapter 23 that we will read tomorrow, if you're reading through the Bible with us, you will see that they had to go back in and destroy all of the Baal worship that had taken residence in the temple itself, even male and female cult prostitutes. The origin for that is right here, the beginning of the conquest of the land. So there's much in Judges that saddens the heart of the reader. Perhaps no book in the Bible witnesses so clearly to the frailty of humanity and also the infidelity of humanity. We are adulterous people. We are a wondering people. We are the ones who would look in the face of the Lord and see his goodness and see his grace and celebrate it one moment. And the very next moment, we're reaching back for something else and flirting with it. That's what you see in the book of Judges. It's indicative of who we are as fallen creatures. So... What we see here is something else that ought to get us excited. We see the unmistakable signs of divine compassion, divine mercy, divine grace, the long-suffering of the Lord. And so it may be that we as the modern reader of this book hear the warning voice of the Spirit saying to us, this is not the way. Do not walk in that way. Do not walk in sinfulness. Do not follow those temptations. Do not stray from the things of God. Don't allow the things of this world to come in and through syncretism change your theology and understanding of the goodness and the grace of God. We learn from Israel's mistake of reforming that theology and instead stay true to the Bible, the Word of God. From this passage this morning, I want to share with you four principles that speak to us as a biblical theological people. And we're going to do this by 10 o'clock. Number one, I heard them chuckle out there. Everything we know about God comes from His Word, right? 
Everything that we're to know about God, it comes from His Word. Again, the question, what is God like? This is one of the great questions of life. It's a question that we have to answer. It's a question that we've got to wrestle with. What is God like? Is He this malefacent, this, this, this malevent, I think that's what I was trying to say. You know my words sometimes get twisted and I create things, right? Malevent, angry, God, this, this old grandpa sitting up there with gray hair and a big stick just looking to bang us on the head when we mess up. Is that who God is? Or is he so lovey-dovey, just kind of passe, just passes over our sin, no, no big deal. I understand you kind of struggle with that. And so just, just go and do what you want to do. This, this all-loving, all-encompassing, forgiving God, is he that or is he both and everything in between? What is God like? This is one of the great questions. It's also the kind of question that gets us in trouble when we go to the wrong source for the answer. I mean, what better source is there to answer this question than to go to the source himself, to read his source that he's given to us through the word of God? One is a first-person account. The other would be, at best, a second-person commentary made up from people who have various opinions and various agendas speaking about this God that we seek to know. So where are we going to go to know about God? We must go to His word. Everything we're to know about God comes from His word. And so the question about God's character and the question about His ways that He deals with us, those are difficult things to wrestle with. How do we, think about this, how do we put together, and we're about to celebrate Christmas, right? My family's already wanting to listen to Christmas music. One particular daughter in my home wants to listen to the 100.9. Some of you people are already on it. Lauren, I think you're the one that got my family doing this. Uh, so, like last night, we're coming home from a small group get-together, and, and Hannah's like, Dad, let's listen to Christmas music. So we cranked 100.9. I'm like, we barely got through Halloween. Thanksgiving's a couple weeks away. We're already in on Christmas. But praise God for, th- for Christmas, amen? But think about what Christmas is. It's, it's the celebration, the, 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 uh, the uh, holiday, where we celebrate how God broke in on humanity and took his son and sacrificed him on behalf of us fallen, rebellious, evil creatures. The, the goodness and the grace and the love of God is what we celebrate at Christmas. Take that and, and juxtapose it over and against what we have just finished up in the Revelation where God at the end of time will come and crush the fallen creatures that we are in our unregenerate state, our rebellion against God. He will crush all evil, all rebellion, all fighting against him. Who is this God that is on one level so gracious and so kind and so merciful and on the other side so vengeful and so wrathful? Those are difficult concepts to hold in tension. And yet that's what we have to do. We have to hold them in tension. In America today, our tendency may not to be wrestle with the characteristics that, the, that we have to hold intentional, but instead what we want to do is pull particular beliefs out and add them to a list of other beliefs from other faiths or other religions or whatever we may concoct ourselves. And so we pull these beliefs out because people are apt to believe to be true simply what they desire to be true. And so we will take a, a principle or a truth or a characteristic about God or how he deals with his people, and we will pull the ones we like and leave the ones we don't like. When we do that, 
we don't get a full understanding of who God is and how he's revealed himself to us. And so the result is a reshaping of truth that is based solely on finite humanistic preferences rather than divine fiat, rather than divine commands, divine declarations of what God has said about himself. It's a dangerous and slippery slope to be on. So if we want to know about God, we go to his word. Thankfully, he has spoken and he's given us all that we need to know about him from the Bible. From this particular passage, in particular these first four verses, I want to share with you five things about God that we see right here. So if we're going to know about God, we learn it from his word, and what does the book of Judges chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 tell us about this God? First of all, we see that God is sovereign. Verse 1, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I did this. That's what the Lord is saying. This divine messenger speaking on behalf of the Lord tells the people of God that he is the one who delivered them from Egypt. He is the one who established them into the land. All of this had taken place just as God had declared it would. Speaks of the sovereignty of God. Speaks of the power of God and how he, he controls all things. I mean, you know the story. God had already promised centuries before this to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob that there would be this land that the nation of Israel, the offspring of Abraham, would occupy. That it would be the land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that would be literally a recreation of what Eden was supposed to be for us. 400 years passed from Jacob to Roughly to Moses, Israel's now in bondage in Israel or in Egypt, and you know the story. Moses has fled because of what he did. He's wrestling with who he is as a Jew, raised up in an Egyptian Pharaoh palace, and so he's been on the backside of the wilderness for forty years. And all of a sudden, God meets him in a burning bush and says, "I want you to go back to Egypt, bring my people out from bondage." And he's like, "I don't know if I can do that. I'm not a good speaker." He's trying everything he can to get out of it. Inevitably, he goes, leads God's people out of that, and they're established into the promised land 40 or so years later. God sovereignly, with a mighty hand, led and protected Israel during those years. Today for us, the same sovereign God stands over our lives. He stands over our families. He stands over our church today. He leads, he protects, and he provides for us. And how do we know that? Because the Bible tells us so. See, that old song that we learned as kids in Sunday school really does have truth to it. The Bible tells us so. Second thing we know about God, that is he's faithful, verse 1. The angel goes on to declare, I will never break my covenant with you. Here he's reminding Israel of God's faithfulness. He's never going to break that covenant. See, while men and women can and do break their commitments, God never does. He is ever faithful. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.13 that God cannot break his covenant. He cannot not be faithful because that is who he is. He cannot deny himself. God is faithful. There's a third thing we learn. That is God is holy. Go on in verse 2. And we see here that you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars. What is he talking about here? He's talking about they're not to be a worshiper of any other God. They're to be true to the Lord. They're to be holy in how they live. Why? Because God is holy. Now, we know the Canaanites lived in this land before the Israelites came and began to conquer it. We know who they were. They're idolatrous. They're pagan people whose religion was nothing more than a nature cult designed to enlist the aid of the Baal pantheon of gods. 
And they would do this through all sorts of debased uh, acts of worship. Some of them even going into cultic prostitution type of worship, even in later in the, in the history of Israel, in the temple itself, as they took on the culture of Canaan. And so this culture was so debased as Israel came into the land that the, the Jews, the Israelites, became the judgment of God coming against them as God judged those people for their paganism and their idolatry and their rebelliousness against God. Jews, the Israelites, became the judgment against them. But also in that, this was a prophylactic that it warned the people of Israel, you cannot and must not walk away from God. Because when you do, judgment will follow. Destruction will follow. So you're to be separated from sin. You're to be separated from sinful things and sinful cultures. Why? Because I'm holy, and as my people, you are to be holy is what God is saying. God is a holy people. Fourthly, God is just. We see in verse 3. He says, I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. He, he's speaking here, this, this message here comes in this description of what has been happening, what's going to happen. And he says, when you walk away, judgment will come upon you. I'm not going to drive the people out like you would love for them to be driven out. Instead, I'm going to leave them. They're going to be a thorn to you, and they're going to be the justness of God coming against your waywardness. These nations would be a thorn in their side. God today is just in all the things that he does and how he deals with our sin. He's not mean. He's not angry. He's not vindictive. He is wrathful, yes, and good that he is because he deals with sin, but he is just. He's always going to meet your sin and my sin in the proper way. He's just in everything he does. Lastly, God is good. God is good. Look at the first part of verse 4. I want you to see this. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words, people began to weep. The Lord, when think about what's going on here, the Lord's not obligated to share anything with the Israelites at this point, just like he's not obligated to share anything with you. It's the goodness of God. We just sing about how he's a good, good father, Right? It's the goodness of God, the graciousness of God that brings him to sinful humanity and says, that in your life is wrong. That in your life is sinful. That in your life is, is a departure from the best that I have for you. The, the divine design that I have for your life, where blessings will, will, will just emerge and overflow in your life. When you're not living in that, danger and destruction is followed. For him to come to you and tell you that is the goodness and the graciousness of of God. God is good. So all that we know and are to know about God comes from his word, comes from the Bible. They're not found in anything else. You're not going to find a description of who our God is by going to the Quran and searching what Muhammad had to say about it. You're not going to go and find it in the Book of Mormon and, and figure out what Joseph Smith had to say about God. You're not going to find it in the Sutras or the Veda. You're not going to find it in any other holy, quote-unquote, writing that this world has to offer. What you're going to know about God comes from the Bible itself. We're a preaching theological people. There's a second thing I want you to see out of this. All that God has given in God's Word is to be applied and obeyed. We were to go on and read in verses 4 through 9, we see that the Israelites heard the warning from the messenger. And what did they do? They immediately went and began to conquest the land. They began to possess the land. 
did what Moses and Joshua had commanded them. And so they began to fight and take possession. They served the Lord faithfully and obediently, the Bible tells us. All the days of Joshua, even the elders who outlived Joshua, who were there present and saw the great and mighty deeds of God, the people of God present during all of that, served the Lord faithfully and obediently. So today for us as believers, we are to faithfully serve and obey the Lord. See, we're to hear and obey the word of God in our lives. It should be applied and fleshed out. Here's what happens on too many Sundays in too many churches. We hear the word of God preached, and we say, man, preacher, that was a great sermon. Man, I've never heard one like that before. Man, that really, that really just spoke into my life. I wish so-and-so was here. They would really benefit from that. Why don't you benefit from hearing the word of God? When you open your Bible and you read it devotionally in the morning, and I hope you're doing that on a regular basis, are you just reading for the sake of reading, reading to check off and say, I did my devotional time? Or are you allowing the word of God to speak into your life, and then not just speaking, but going and applying it? Allowing it to press down deep into our hearts and into our minds, pressed out through our life, making a difference as we apply and obey it. To not obey the word of God, James would tell us, is foolish. It's like the man who goes and looks in the mirror and forgets what he looks like when he leaves. So James tells us to be a doer of the word and not merely a hearer who deceives himself. All that is given in God's word should be applied and obeyed, failing to do so. Is dangerous. This leads us to a third principle. The casual neglecting of God's word quickly leads to blatant evil. We continue in the story here that Judge is laying out for us. We see that that generation after Joshua that knew the great works of God died off, and this new generation arises, verse 10 tells us, and the, tells us that they did not know the Lord or his work. And so this first generation, then we must conclude, did something wrong, right? Either they failed to teach the Word of God, or they failed to model the Word of God, or probably a combination of those. Somehow, some way, there's a disconnect between this faithful generation and how they sought to live out the things of God in their life, and the generation that followed them. And oh, how many of that happens in the church, right? Grandma and Grandpa have loved the Lord and served the Lord. They've been a part of the local church and, and, and just giving it their all, trying to live out the gospel in their life in some form or fashion. But somehow, over the generations, the children that they have and their children and even their grandchildren somehow miss it along the way. And the legacy is lost. That's what's happening here. Somehow there's a casual neglecting of God's word and that quickly leads to a blatant evil and the embracing of that evil. So I believe it was a combination of both failing to teach and failing to model the gospel that led to the second generation walking away from God. See, those children grew up under their parents' faith, but they never became faithful. They never began to hold on and to have a faith of their own. They simply had religious activity, but never had a regenerate heart. You can be in church your whole life and never be regenerate, which means born again. Many of us grew up in church, but it wasn't until the latter part of life that you actually came to know the Lord. God in His grace and mercy enabled that to happen. Unfortunately, it doesn't always happen that way for a good portion of the people. Casual neglecting of God's Word leads to blatant evil. That brings us to a fourth principle. The abandoning, the abandoning of God's Word 
brings the judging hand of God. We got to know this as we think about who we are as a theological people. God always deals with sin. And so the abandonment of God's word brings God's judgment upon his people. Just as God had warned Israel through Moses, now we're seeing it played out. Here's, here's what we know. If we were to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses is giving the second law. That's what Deuteronomy means, the giving of the second law. And so Moses is about to pass off the scene. He's not going to go into the promised land with the people of God. And so before he does so as a great leader, he's preparing them to go in to the land. So he reiterates the law to them. And in Deuteronomy 7, verses 2 through 11, we see that, that Moses lays out that if you will follow God's word, if you will abide by these commands, blessings will follow you. God's goodness will be there. God's grace will, will just overwhelm your life. God will protect you and provide for you. Everything that's been promised will be yours if you will abide by these commands. But then he goes on to say the reverse. Verses 17 through chapter 8, verse 20. He says, if you don't do this, destruction will follow. I will cast you out of the land. I will destroy you. I will allow the nations to come in and do this. So God tells them that if you abandon my word, judgment will be brought upon you as my people. Here we see him justly bringing judgment on Israel for their disobedience. Think about what's going on here. In Judges, this cycle is happening because they have abandoned the word of God. And God's justly bringing judgment. When you think about this, we, we honestly, most of us probably want to pull back and be like, that's a little harsh, Lord. That's a little too much punishment for what they're doing. Why can't you dial it back a, a, a tab or two? Why does it need to be so severe? And yet God is always just. God is always going to deal with sin. Here's what we know about God. He is unchanging. He's unchanging. The, the theological term is immutable. If you just want to walk around and throw a big term out there and, and just act like you know some theology. Remember we are talking about theology this morning. God is unchanging. He never changes. He, he's always going to deal the same way in this, with the same sin and the same way with the same uh, uh, obedience in your life. He's always going to be the same. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. He's not fickle in his love for you, nor is he hesitant in dealing with your sin that you have in your life. Now in his long suffering, we may seem that he's not going to deal with my sin. We may think that we're getting away with it, but let me just tell you, you're not ever getting away with your sin. He does not change. And so the God who gave us his word here in Judges, who tells us that he hates sin, you know who that God is today and what he's like? He's still the God who hates sin. He's still the God who judges sin. And he hates it and judges it. Why? Because it undermines his authority as creator. He hates it because it undermines his authority as your king. That's why he hates it. He also hates it because it's an affront to him. It's the exact opposite of who and what God is like. God is holy. God is good. So God is also just, and in his justness, he holds us responsible for our sin. I mean, Paul said it well in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The payment for sin is death. There is a payment to pay when we choose to disobey and to disregard God's commands. So our sinful rebellion, what does it do? It puts us under the just judgment and the condemnation of a holy God. And so just as Israel is responsible for their sin and for their rebellion, you and I are also equally responsible for the sin that we have committed against God. And yet there's grace there. 
There's an offer of forgiveness there. There's an offer for repentance there. There's the same offer given to them that's given to us. When we begin to think that we know better than God, and when we begin to abandon his divine commands, what do we do? It brings us under the judgment of God because he is just. How do we know this? The Bible tells us so. And so the big question then, as we land the plane this morning, why is theology important? It tells us what we need to know about God. It informs our understanding of God. It also informs our understanding of ourselves. You see, if we didn't have the word of God, we would probably walk around and think that we're doing all right. Right? You know how why you would think you're doing all right? Because you know someone else is worse than you. And so you compare yourself to the slimy person that lives down the street. Or the person at your office that you know is, is, just a, is just a horrible person, right? You compare yourself to them and you're like, man, I'm good, right? The things that I'm doing in my life, surely if they're on a scale, they're tipping in my way. And yet the Lord never deals with our sin in, in such a fashion. And if he does, the other slimy person's not on the other side of the scale. The holiness of God is on the other side of the scale. And how many of us are tipping that in our favor? Nobody. Why do we need theology? Because it tells us who God is, and it tells us who we are as humans. And so then knowing who God is and what he brings, what does that do? It brings solidarity when the storms of life slam against us. Aren't you grateful today that when the storms of life will hit your life and seek to destroy you, that you can hold firm knowing that though everything in my life seems to be wasting away, that the foundation underneath my feet seems to be pulling itself out from underneath me, I know I have a God who holds me firmly, even as the storms of life. He's good, he's just, he's right, he's holy, he's powerful, he's sovereign, holds us together. It's a day when the broken wife, who has a husband who walks out on her and the kids, what is she to think? She can sit there and rest assured that her faith is in a God who will uphold her, even while the man she loved has walked out. What are two grieving parents to think of God when their child dies prematurely? I remember several years ago I had uh, the privilege and responsibility back in Alabama to perform a a funeral for a little boy that was going to be the delight of two young parents' lives. And rather than that child being born and uh, received as they expected, that child was born dead, stillborn, stillborn baby. Standing there in that funeral room and and seeing that little baby in a little bitty casket was absolutely almost more than I could endure, even as the the visiting pastor trying to minister to a family. can imagine what parents would feel when they're faced with such a a situation as that. And yet, what do they think of God? They know that he's faithful. They know know that he's sovereign. They know that that, that his promises through the gospel are true and and that there will be a day that they will get to see that that believing child, that, that faithful child one day. What is the destitute person to think of God when his or her financial foundation is ripped away? We know that our foundation is not built on money or the things of this world. We know that our foundation is built on gospel and the word of God and the future that we have as the people of God. What's the adulterer, the drunkard, the thief, the homosexual, the immoral sinner? What is anyone who's walking and rebelling against God to think of God as they enjoy their sin? What are they to think? They ought to feel the weight of that sinfulness upon themselves. They ought to feel the judgment that they're walking in. It's not that Jesus came to condemn us in our sin. Our sin already condemns us, right? And so they ought to feel that 
because the word of God tells them that, they also ought to feel the gospel and what it wants to do in their life. And understand that there is hope even while they're enjoying their sins. There's time and an opportunity to turn from sin and turn to Jesus and experience a restoration in their life. You see, in all of this, the Bible teaches us that God heals the broken, God comforts the grieving, God restores the destitute, and God judges the sinful. Our reshaping, our redefining of God, doing that in his word or of his word is to no avail. We may change the things of the Bible. And here's what's happening in China today. You probably heard this in a report. That China is going in and changing certain texts, certain passages within the Bible so that they can hopefully alter the church that is gaining so much ground in China. You may go in and change some words in this book, but you know what you'll never do? Change God. And so why do we think in our rebellion and fallenness that we can do that? Paul gives us a good word. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. We're a theological people, grounded and building our lives upon the word of God. The Bible tells us God loves us. Man, that's what we see here, judges. If we were to go back and you know, just look at this from a human standpoint, I, I don't know about you, but I look at them like, these guys are knuckleheads. They never got it, right? They continue to walk in rebellion. They, God's grace, gracious, God's merciful, God's good to them. God re, uh, uh, fights for them and restores them to the land. And then like two decades later, they're doing the same thing over again. And yet I look at my own life, and that's many times the pattern. It tells me that God loves me because he never just wipes me away and says, I'm done with your despicable carcass. Get out of here. He doesn't say that. No, the Bible tells us over and over again that he loves us, cares for us. He created us for that purpose. But we also know that we're sinful. And yet in our sinfulness and our rebellion against God, the good news, the best news of the gospel is that Jesus took your sin and my sin upon himself and bore it so that we wouldn't have to. He was punished so we wouldn't have to be punished. He was condemned so that we could be free and forgiven. This morning, many of us in this room, many of you watching online, that is the testimony of your life. That there was a time in your life that you weren't just religious. In fact, religion has nothing to do with it. That you understood your sinfulness, you understood the gospel message and how you need to turn from that sin and turn to Jesus, and you receive Christ as Lord and Savior. And today, you're a child of God. You've been born again. Some of us in this room, some watching online, that's not the testimony of your life. You might be religious. You, this might be the first time you've ever heard the gospel at all. But you're not in relationship with Jesus. Instead, you're in your sin. And the Paul would tell it this way. You're dead in your sin. Cut off from God. So the greatest need in your life today is to turn from that and receive Jesus in Lord and Savior. We're going to have a time of response in just a moment. I'm going to stand right here, and if you need to respond in faith, turning from your sin, turning to Jesus, come. Now, walking this out doesn't save you, but I will get you with someone who can help you pray and ask the Lord to become the Lord and Savior of your life. I want to ask you and invite you to come forth. You want to go ahead and come, Michael, you can. The rest of us, man, if you need to respond, just come up here and make these steps and altar to the Lord and just praise the Lord for what he's done in your life. Or maybe you want him to, to move in your life in a certain way. Maybe you want to spin around in your seat and just may, kneel down there and pray to the Lord. But when we hear the word of God, we must respond to the word of God. Amen? Otherwise, what are we? We're just those who hear it and forget. We must be doers of the word of God. Lord Jesus, we are grateful to be able to set under your word this morning.
And I pray that your Holy Spirit has spoken mightily into us. And like a searchlight, perhaps even exposed areas that are not under the Lordship of Christ. God, I pray that we wouldn't feel that and, and sense that and think that's mean and judgmental. God, may we sense that and feel that and understand that it is the grace and the goodness of God exposing those areas. So, Father, may we lay them before you. I, I love 1 John 1, 9. If we are faithful to confess our sins, He, you, Lord Jesus, are faithful to forgive and to remove all sin. We bless you for that this morning. God, I pray for those who need a relationship with you today. God, may they come and turn from that sin and trust you as Lord and Savior this morning. Here in this room, those watching us online, even those who would watch or hear this message in days and the weeks to come. Bless us, Father, as we respond in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet.